think something that's really important is social media. Is there's definitely a lot of misinformation because anyone can post anything. We don't really know what to look out for and what not to look out for, you know? Hi, I'm Delaney Rustin, physician and filmmaker, and this is the Screenagers podcast, which is about working with our kids and teens to increase the positive sides of tech in their lives while decreasing the negative sides. Before we get started, I want to share some exciting news. My new book, Parenting in the Screen Age, is just releasing, and you can learn about it and order it at ScreenagersMovie.com. It has been a long labor of love, and I'm so happy to have it out now with all the complexities of screen time and our pandemic. Today's episode is so important. It's about how do we help our youth decipher all the types of information that's coming to them via the internet, and of course that includes social media. What's reliable information? There's misinformation, disinformation, conspiracies, so many things. Okay, take a breath. My first guest is a researcher in this field. My name is Joel Breakstone. I am the director of the Stanford History Education Group, and we are a research and development outfit. Wonderful. And what's your goal around disinformation? So we are trying to prepare young people to be discerning consumers of information and to be able to locate trustworthy sources of information online. The troubling part about our current moment is the ease at which information is spread, that anybody who has a digital device has the opportunity to potentially reach millions of people and that problematic content can spread at alarming rates. It's not as though uh, disinformation or misinformation is new. What's different is the speed that information now spreads. I asked Joel to tell me about his research regarding high school students and their ability to evaluate online information. Last year, we completed a study of high school students all across the United States. It was a sample that reflects the population of high school students in the United States. And the study asked students to complete a series of different tasks where they were evaluating sources that were drawn from the internet. We asked more than 3,000 students to complete these tasks. They did it during school on uh, school-issued computers with live internet connections, and they were allowed to search online to answer the questions. One of the tasks presented students with a Facebook video that claimed to show voter fraud in the United States during the 2016 presidential primaries. And it uh, showed these videos of individuals supposedly stuffing ballots into ballot boxes uh, during elections in several states across the country. And we asked students whether or not this was a trustworthy source of evidence or a strong piece of evidence about voter fraud during the Democratic primaries. So here's what Joel's group discovered. More than half of the students, 52% of the students, said that it was indeed strong evidence of voter fraud. They didn't ask the question of, where did this video come from? Who posted it on Facebook? Uh, It comes from an anonymous source, Ion Flicks. And there is no indication at all that these videos uh, are drawn from the United States. Yet, more than half the students said that it was a strong source uh, of evidence. 
Moreover, the students who rejected it, rejected it for problematic reasons. They didn't ask the question of where these videos come from. Are they actually from uh, the states that they claim to be from? Instead, they rejected the video on grounds such as they wanted more videos. There weren't enough videos or that they couldn't uh, hear anything and they needed uh, audio to really understand if this was good evidence. Out of all of those students, 3,446 students, only three students left the website, opened a new tab, and did a search. And if they did a search, they could quickly find out that, in fact, the videos are from Russia and have nothing to do with voter fraud in the United States. Only three students? Only three students opened a new tab and did a search to find information about where these videos actually came from. What did they actually, what would you have searched? If a student searched voter fraud, Democratic primary, Pennsylvania, which is what the claim that is being made, immediately there will be a Snopes article from the fact-checking uh, website Snopes indicating where the videos came from. So if you just simply repeated uh, in a search what is supposedly being uh, represented in the video, there are immediate sources of information indicating that this is totally inaccurate. I asked Joel what we should be doing to help students learn. He said he first needed to explain this study that they did to get that answer. Members of our group uh, conducted a study uh, with three groups of people, professional fact checkers from some of the nation's most prominent news organizations, professional historians, folks who have PhDs in history and are now working as professors at, at uh, large research universities, and also uh, freshmen at Stanford University, uh, kids who have uh, won the admissions lottery and got into one of the, the most selective uh, universities in the United States. And we asked all three groups to evaluate a series of different websites. For instance, in one task, we asked uh, each group to look at an article from minimumwage.com and indicate whether or not that would be a trustworthy source of information about minimum wage policy. The website is operated by an organization called the Employment Policies Institute, which uh, appears to be a credible source. They refer to themselves as a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. However, it is run by a Washington, D.C. public relations firm that works for the food and beverage industry. It's a front group trying to influence the debate about minimum wage. The food and beverage industry has a vested interest in keeping minimum wages lower. And as a result, they have created this website that seeks to make it seem as though there are very solid academic and research-based explanations for the benefits of a lower minimum wage. I learned the name for these types of websites astroturfing, uh, trying to create the appearance of a grassroots uh, campaign when in fact it is backed by corporate interests. Okay, so what did Joel's team learn about each of the groups? When we asked the Stanford students and the professors and the fact checkers to evaluate this source, the historians and the Stanford students stayed on the original website and read it very carefully. They engaged in the close reading that we often reward students for when they are uh, taking tests. And as a result, they just saw the information that Employment Policies Institute and Berman & Co. wanted them to see. Only 60% 
of the historians and only 40% of the Stanford students ever discovered that Berman and Co. was actually behind minimumwage.com. In contrast, 100% of the fact checkers figured out who was behind minimumwage.com. How'd they do that? By leaving the site. Almost immediately, they left the site, opened up new tabs, and searched for information about the Employment Policies Institute and discovered that a public relations firm was behind the website. Joel explains that this is termed lateral reading. Rather than reading it deeply, leaving it almost instantly, opening up a new tab and doing what we refer to as lateral reading, to read across the horizontal axis of our browser window to see what other sources have to say about the original website. You did this study and it prompted you to create key takeaways of what we want our kids and students to know. So can you go ahead and give a few of those? Yeah, so we've tried to distill some of the strategies that the fact checkers use to come to better conclusions. One of them is lateral reading. Another one is what we refer to as click restraint. When a, the fact checkers engaged in a search, they wouldn't immediately click on the first search result that appeared. Instead, they would take 15 or 30 seconds and quickly scan down the search results and look at the snippets, the little bit of information below the search result, the name of the website, the title, to decide which of these results might be the best starting place for their research. And as a result, they often came to better sources of information that yielded information that was more relevant to the questions that they were trying to ask. In contrast, the Stanford students often just clicked on the first search result, which is what research shows many, many people do when they're searching online. And as a result, they, they frequently did not encounter the best sources to answer the questions that they were seeking answers to. The other strategy that we encourage students to engage in is to, to ask the questions that we saw guiding the fact checkers approach to online information. There were three big questions that guided their evaluations of online sources. First was, who's behind this information? That's the question that pushes us to engage in lateral reading. We also saw the fact checkers ask the question of, what's the evidence? Is there evidence here? If so, is it coming from a credible source? And then finally, what do other sources say of seeking out information from other sources and looking for multiple sources saying something similar so that we don't just rely on a single source of information? I asked him, you know, what's been normally taught in schools, and he explained that it's the crap test. Yes, you got it, the crap test. Many of you probably have heard of it. Uh, C stands for currency, you know, how recent is whatever's being posted. Reliability, such as are there references. Authority, who wrote it. And purpose, such as is this a point of view piece or is it trying to sell you something. But Joel explained to me why there's some real problems with the crap test. We have evidence that, that the crap test doesn't work that those questions that are uh, included in the crap test often lead to incorrect uh, conclusions. For instance, if you were to apply the crap test to minimumwage.com, 
it would come out looking pretty good uh, that it, it is current and relevant and they link to authoritative sources and there's uh, questions about whether or not it is a .org website. Um, the Employment Policies Institute, uh, minimumwage.com's parent organization is a .org. So there are a variety of ways in which uh, the crap test can lead us to really bad conclusions. And as we've asked students all across the country to complete these assessments uh, of online reasoning, we've seen over and over again that they often use these outdated ways of evaluating sites. Like, is it a .org versus a .com as though a .org might be more trustworthy? Or is there a contact person listed? Or is, uh, is there a link to an authoritative source? Um, none of which are good indicators of the credibility of a given source. Here's an 11th grader in Madison, Wisconsin, telling me what he's learned in school. Look for .org and not .com. Something as simple as that. Or look for, if it doesn't have an author, then it's probably not very good. Or look for the publisher, or look how new it is. Sure enough, he's describing elements of the crap test. We have seen uh, people all across the country using the crap test. If you search for the crap test, you will get tens of thousands of hits and it will appear on uh, the websites of libraries and colleges and universities from Alaska to Florida. So it is incredibly widespread and absolutely we should work to adopt approaches that are based in research. We like research. And it's great that Joel's group is so focused on sharing evidence-based strategies. I keep thinking, though, how does this all apply to social media? Not just websites, but things like Instagram, Snapchat, and TikTok. Well, I think an issue on all social media platforms is that information from various sources appears the same. And so there isn't uh, necessarily a, a clear way to distinguish between types of sources or the quality of information when you are engaging with it uh, through social media. And so it becomes crucial to ask this question of, of who's behind the information, because just at first glance, you're not necessarily going to be able to determine the credibility of a, of a given source as it appears in a social media feed. When I go on my social media apps, I often see information that can be misleading. That's Chloe, a ninth grader. I ask her where she seems to be seeing misleading posts. The misleading posts that I see tend often have to do with political things, such as like presidency candidates and the Black Lives Matter movement and just multiple things that I that are going around in the United States typically. Sometimes I've seen some of my close friends repost unreliable posts. Chloe told me of a friend who was posting things that Chloe didn't think were true. Some of the statistics and specific examples and information did not seem valid. She also didn't really understand about the opposing concept, the all lives matter. She thought it just meant like everyone should be equal when it really just means like black lives don't mean to be don't shouldn't be as advocated and don't deserve that light and attention that they do deserve. I wanted to know if Chloe tells her friends if she's concerned about something they've posted. If I am more comfortable with them, I do tend to bring up that you should be a little bit more careful about what you repost because everyone's always on online. Everyone's always looking at what you're reposting. And it's just important that valuable information gets shared. And regarding the friend she mentioned, she did talk to her about her posts. And I asked her how that went. 
she was very surprised and she realized that she totally understood my point and did some research on it herself and realized that, wow, like, that is not what I was intending when I posted this. I'm going to be more careful about what I read online from now on. And yeah. So what does Chloe do before reposting something? When I decide to repost it, I give the account that posted it a good check. I look at their followers. I look at who is following it. I see if they're verified or not. And I also just look at the information that they give and see whether it just seems valid or not. Verified on Instagram. Chloe explains the term verified. When an account is like very well known and is just like known across the country, they get what's called a verification, which is a little blue check mark next to their name, which just knows that like they're not like a fake account and that they're real and that they're very well known. Have you actually clicked through the link that somebody has shared? That is Joel Breakstone again. So often we see that people are sharing links without having actually looked at the linked source or uh, decide whether or not the individual or the organization being quoted is credible. One high school senior in California, Malia, told me something that, as a mom, made me very happy. The fact that at times she brings up a questionable post with her parents. Like, sometimes I'll see people, like, like two or three people reposting something that isn't probably like is probably fake news and so like I have to and like I look it up and it's kind of vague or something so if I'll usually like have a conversation with my parents and if it's if it's credible among among age groups then I will usually back it up. This is all a complex issue and it's scary. We need tech companies to be stepping up and doing much more to stop the many ways disinformation is happening. We need better policies and accountability in regard to what these companies are doing. For all of us, I know it can feel just so overwhelming, all this disinformation, conspiracies, all of it. But we can do things. If we keep bringing up this topic of how to scrutinize information in calm conversations with our kids can make such a big difference. And so that they know that all of us should not be reposting things that we question and how we can educate others who have posted things we're concerned about. So just a quick summary of some of the things we discussed today. First, B, who's behind a post or website? Also to think about E, what is the evidence behind what is being reported? And then S for sources. Are there other good sources saying similar things? I like to add a T, B-E-S-T for best, and T is for timely. Is the post really current or is it something from some other time and claiming that it's this incident? Joel also mentioned click restraint. Don't just click on the top link that comes up in a search, but scroll down and see which one seems actually the better one. Joel's group at Stanford has excellent tools to help everyone, kids and adults, to become more savvy about all of this. So we have developed curriculum resources, also a set of videos that we developed in collaboration with John Green and the team at Crash Course that are focused on all of the skills and concepts that are included in the Civic Online Reasoning curriculums. They're all available for free on our website, which is cor.stanford.edu. 
Well, that's wonderful. And I see this so much as a family curriculum. I mean, they're so engaging the materials at your website that, you know, if a family commits to, okay, once a week, let's do one of these uh, videos together and talk about it. We are going to make such a big impact if we can all do this in our homes right now at this very moment. Yeah, without a doubt. That's it for the show today. And I just want to say how great it has been to have so many people reach out with the fact that they're sharing Screenagers and Screenagers Next Chapter with their kids now at home to be thinking deeply about screen time, not from a scare tactic, but a share tactic looking at science and stories as a way to engage our kids in really productive conversations. I hope you will spread the word about this podcast. It means so much to us. And remember that there are so many resources at ScreenagersMovie.com, how you can see the movies right now, how you can get my weekly blog, Tech Talk Tuesdays, and so many other resources. I want to thank Joel Breakstone for being on the podcast and Ty, Chloe, and Malia. And my co-producer, Lisa. I'm Delaney Rustin, the editor and producer. I look forward to seeing you next time. 